It's interesting that some people can benefit from taking melatonin. And when you take a look at the research, about the age of 55, 60 and above, we have less melatonin release. So does that mean that anybody above that age should take melatonin? Well, I would caution on the reason you think you may need to take it. Hi, I'm Dr. Morgan Nolte, founder of Zivli. As a geriatric physical therapist, I saw the heartbreaking effects of insulin resistance. At Zivli, our mission is to help you prevent and reverse insulin resistance for long-term weight loss and disease prevention through a low insulin and inflammation lifestyle. Each week on this podcast, you'll learn simple, actionable tips to lose weight, keep it off, and get healthy. If you're ready to create a body and life you love, you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Reshape Your Health podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Morgan Nolte. I am so excited about today's episode. It is a long time coming. One of the most frequently asked questions, especially with middle-aged women, is how can I sleep better? Insomnia, waking up early in the morning, waking up frequently throughout the night, having a hard time falling asleep. All of these are major issues for women that lead to a lack of energy to follow through on other health habits that need to change to lower insulin resistance. So today with me is Dr. Valerie Cacho. She is an integrative sleep medicine specialist, specialist, and her interests are in diagnosing and treating medical sleep disorders, women's sleep concerns, mind-body approaches to insomnia, self-compassion training, clinical hypnotherapy, and promoting sleep health and wellness. She is the president and founder of Sleep Life Med, a telesleep practice in Hawaii and California. And she's also the CEO of Sleepphoria, a wellness brand founded on the belief that a well-rested woman has the energy, clarity, and drive to change the world. And I absolutely love that mission. Um, at Zivli, our mission is to really help people reduce insulin resistance to prevent diabetes, heart disease, dementia, obesity. And we were talking offline on how her message fits so well into the framework of the four pillars of nutrition and and movement and sleep and stress all on the foundation of mindset. So if you've been with us for a while, if you're familiar with the content, everything that we're talking about today really falls under the sleep pillar and then the mindset foundation. And so um, she's given me permission to call her Dr. Val throughout this episode. And so that's what I'll do. Dr. Val, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you start with a little bit of your story, how you got into medicine, and then specifically how you got so interested in helping women improve their sleep? Thanks so much, Morgan. Very happy to be here. So I actually grew up in a family of healthcare professionals. My father is a cardiologist, so I know a little bit about the heart. And also my mom is a nurse. And, you know, growing up, my dad is an interventional cardiologist. He was always busy. He was always in and out of the hospital. I didn't see him very much. And knowing early on I wanted to have my own family, I pretty much ruled out cardiology as a field. And one of his good friends actually is a sleep doctor. So he gave a talk, I think I was in high school or college, and I'm just learning about the physiology of sleep. And I've always been more interested in developing relationships with patients, talking about prevention. Um, I grew up as Seventh-day Adventist. So, you know, really the health message, eating healthy foods is really part of it. And sleep has more as 
as I learned more about it, it just seemed to really fit. Because, you know, as you were saying, sleep is one of the pillars of, you know, health and the foundational. And I'm super biased because I'm a sleep doctor. But it's almost like if you don't get good sleep, guess what? You're not going to have the energy to cook healthy meals, to go move your body, right? Things just work so much better when your brain's working better and you have energy. And guess what? You get that from sleep. And also, if you don't get enough sleep, it's actually really inflammatory for your body. So you talk about the insulin resistance and guess what? Getting better sleep is part of that. So there's just so many different connections between getting an adequate amount of sleep, getting optimal sleep and improving your health. And that's just really my life's focus. And I really love helping women. And sometimes I get asked them, you know, why did you focus on women? I think in, in the field of medicine, women just have um, sort of been as to the side, I think we're really marginalized. If you take a look at a lot of the research, it leaves women out. I think we're understanding and learning more and more about that. Um, a lot of the patients that I used to see when I was working with the hospital system were women coming in feeling fatigued, feeling tired. Um, you know, they were sent to a psychologist or a psychiatrist because you know, maybe they had depression. Um, they were they were given thyroid tests, but their sleep wasn't really addressed. And really, not to blame um, their practitioners. If you take a look at nursing school, medical school, sleep just isn't given that much attention. You know, culturally here in the U.S., you know, it's all sleep when I'm retired, I'll sleep when I'm dead. People who sleep in are viewed as lazy. So there's just a lot that needs to be reworked. And, you know, the mindset we have around sleep, I think it's really time for a change. Yeah. And we were talking offline. You mentioned so many people just deal with that everyday fatigue mm-hmm. and they talk to other people and they're like, I'm so tired. and you know, like attracts like, and so their friends Mm -hmm. are so tired too. And people just almost feel that exhaustion is a normal part of aging or a normal part of living. And I think especially going through COVID, all of us Mm -hmm. have felt a little bit more weight on our shoulders, right? a little bit more emotional weight that can contribute to Mm -hmm. that exhaustion. And um, I didn't tell you this, we have two young kids. So almost Mm. five, almost three, neither have been good sleepers. We, my husband and I, especially have been focused on how, how can we get more sleep um, with what's in our control? Um, So I'm so interested to talk with you more about this today. Um, I think where I wanted to start and where I want to guide this interview Mm -hmm. for listening. So it's really easy to follow is in my clinical practice, when I'm coaching someone over sleep, I always start with, are you having a hard time falling asleep, staying asleep, or is your wake time too early? Mm-hmm. So I wanted to start the conversation with difficulty falling asleep. And I want you to just kind of make this a little master class on sleep. Yeah. So what are all of the reasons, all of the potential reasons that someone may have difficulty falling asleep? Yeah, that's a great question, Morgan. And that's exactly the same framework that I use when someone comes to my practice, because there's different approaches depending on what the problem is, right? Either difficulty falling asleep, staying asleep, or waking up too early. So I'll take a step back and just talk a little bit about sleep science and what happens in your bodies when we do sleep. And if you take a look at the biological rhythms, there's two main ones. The first is the homeostatic sleep drive. And all that means is the longer you're awake, the sleepier you get. 
And this really plays a role in folks who maybe take an afternoon nap, you know, they're just so tired, maybe they didn't sleep well the night before because they have young kids, which I have as well. Um, or maybe they're taking care of their elderly parents, or, you know, for whatever reason, didn't sleep well the night before, sometimes feel like they need to take a nap in the afternoon, getting home from work. And when you take that nap, it actually relieves some of that pressure. And so when it comes to your normal bedtime, whether it be, you know, 9, 10, 11, not as sleepy. And so you want to make sure that you stay awake long enough so that you are sleepy um, at night. And so if you are going to nap, you know, I do recommend naps. I actually love napping because I'm very sensitive to caffeine. And sometimes caffeine can stick around a lot. And caffeine actually affects this um, homeostatic sleep drive because that pressure that's building up is process S, also known as adenosine. And so caffeine, the way it works, can actually block that adenosine receptor. So it can actually delay you know, your sleepiness, which is a good thing in the morning time. But for some folks, sometimes caffeine sticks around a lot. So things that you ingest, right, caffeine can affect your ability to fall asleep, that sleep pressure that gets built up. The other biological rhythm that affects our sleep is our circadian rhythm, um, our internal clock. And most people, I see most of the population do feel tired around nine or 10, but there is a subset that's genetics. We see this more frequently um, as kids go through puberty, as they go to high school and college. I'm sure everyone knows probably someone, or maybe this is um, yourself, where taking the later classes, right? You know, if you're in the dorm room, sometimes part of it is just social, people stay up later. And then it's not necessarily as much of an issue in college because you can you know, adjust your schedule. But then when you're starting your normal job and you have to get up at 6 or 7 a.m. to be in the work by 8 or 9, you know, those are the type of patients that I see because after they've seen their primary care physician and they've tried you know, sleeping pills, it's just not working. Um, it's not necessarily a form of insomnia. It's a circadian rhythm issue where their internal clock isn't quite ready to fall asleep around 9 or 10, but they know they got to wake up at six or seven. So they're just laying there, willing themselves to sleep, getting frustrated that they're not sleeping. Yeah. So we actually call that delayed sleep phase syndrome. And that's definitely something that can be addressed. So having an internal clock that's a little bit shifted can keep us from falling asleep. Certainly women have higher rates of anxiety um, and that can also keep us from falling asleep because the other aspect of our sleep system besides our circadian rhythm and our homeostatic sleep drive is our arousal state. So if we have a lot of stress going on, if we have anxiety that's not controlled, or if you, if we just have a hard time winding down, sometimes for me, I don't have anything particular on my mind, but if it's just you know, things that I need to do, or even an upcoming vacation that I am excited about. So it doesn't always have to be a negative event. Sometimes it's something you're looking forward to. Sometimes I have a hard time being able to fall asleep. So um, when we take a look at someone who comes to the lab and I do a sleep study, what we're looking for is how fast or how slow their brainwaves are firing based on their EEG. And so, you know, encouraging patients to really take a look at their own life and what's keeping someone from falling asleep, right? Is it your clock? Is it because you're not as tired? You know, maybe you need to move your body some more, right? You know, as you move your body, one of the breakdown products, right, of ATP is adenosine, and that can help you feel more sleepy. Um, so, yeah, so that uh, those are some of the <laughs> sort of the things I think that can keep you from falling asleep. Okay, so we have the... Um... You said the delayed sleep wake cycle, right? Was a major one. Delayed sleep phase syndrome. Yes. Delayed sleep phase syndrome. Okay. Mm -hmm. K 
caffeine for some people. We were talking mm-hmm. online. You said it doesn't affect some people as much as it does others. So yes. what's what's the deal with caffeine? Yeah. So caffeine has um, the, the property of caffeine can block the adenosine receptor, and adenosine is that pressure that builds up, right? The longer you're awake, you have more adenosine that makes you sleepy. So if you're blocking that adenosine from building up, then you're not going to be as sleepy. Definitely, I'd say on average, it's probably six to eight hours where half of the caffeine is gone. But some reports say even longer, like 10 hours, 24 hours. I know for me personally speaking, before I had kids, I could drink two to three cups of coffee, sleep, no problem. After my second kid, I'm not sure what happened. I can't drink any caffeine um, from coffee, Teas are definitely much better. Um, and it's even the amount of green tea, even black tea is too strong. So if you aren't sure if caffeine is impacting your ability to fall asleep, you know, be your own scientist, do a little experiment, um, maybe more on the weekends where if you're not needing to go to work, <laughs> not needing to drive, so your energy levels could be a little bit shifted. The other thing too is if you are decreasing your caffeine, you know, there are symptoms of caffeine withdrawal. So it could be a little bit uncomfortable. So just um, prefacing that, you know, sometimes people who stop caffeine abruptly um, can have things like headaches or maybe some nausea. Yeah. So just something to um, warn you about if you are going to experiment with your caffeine load. And severe fatigue. So yes, I, and fatigue. Okay. I gave up coffee, uh, caffeinated coffee because I kept waking up at four or five ready to go mm. for the day. And I was just over it. And I'm like, I love my coffee so much. I love my morning routine, but my sleep is more important. And so over about two months, I cut back from four cups a day to two cups a day to one cup a day to decaf. Um, And I was so tired. Like Mm -hmm. I thought I was pregnant again. (laughs) I was or had COVID or something. I'm like, I am so tired for like a month, six Mm -hmm. weeks, maybe even so it's worth it for people considering it. But um, even though I gradually decreased, I still Mm -hmm. had quite a bit of fatigue for a month. Um, Mm -hmm. So I, yeah. And I'm like you, it's like, it affected me more after I had kids. I hear after women goes, goes through perimenopause or menopause, um, their gut health changes. They may experience a decreased ability to tolerate caffeine um, and alcohol. Have you noticed that as well in your practice? Yeah, definitely. Um, I'd say for me personally as well, alcohol, I can't tolerate it at all. It just, even sometimes the thought of it makes me feel nauseous. So um, yeah, definitely. And I would say in my practice, it's really interesting because I do have some some folks who come in um, heavily drinking because it's the only way they know how to fall asleep. So alcohol is a really interesting substance in the fact that early on, if you have it, you know, before bedtime, it can make you fall asleep um, pretty fast, especially the more you drink. However, when alcohol breaks down, you know, is it the metabolites of the alcohol or oftentimes if you're drinking wine or mixed drinks, it also has a lot of sugar in it. And so, you know, in the later half of the night, people have more awakenings. Um, And we see this, you know, from lab studies, but also um, people have told me that, the quality of sleep that they get isn't very good. So, but you know, they just didn't have the other tools to learn how to be able to fall asleep. So yeah, yeah the really other interesting. big thing that comes to my mind is blue light. Um, mm. And I was, like, for me, it's a fall asleep, but I was going to pick mm-hmm. your brain a lot about um, melatonin specifically. Yes. Um, so can you speak to blue light and melatonin and 
Does it help you? For me, it seems to help fall asleep and stay asleep, but I wanted to that out a little bit for you. That's a good question. And I didn't explain the circadian cycle science as much as I probably should have. So I like to start in the evening time. So what happens when it starts to become dusk and dark, darkness is that signal to your brain, you know, through your retina, that it's time for melatonin to be released deep in your pineal gland. And when we think about what melatonin does, it helps support the different stages of sleep. And so it's really marketed as a sleeping pill, but it's not really a sleeping pill. We have four stages of sleep. There's stage one, stage two, stage three, and then stage REM. And depending on how long we sleep, we cycle through these um, sleep stages about every 90 minutes, four to six times a night. And going back to the homeostatic sleep drive, you know, if you're thinking about it, the longer you're awake, the sleepier you get. And then when you go to sleep, about four and a half, five hours later, you're, you're releasing that pressure. So sometimes people who wake up in the middle of the night, I think, which we'll get to have a hard time going back to sleep. It's because you're not as sleepy. It's almost like, you know, your battery is like half full and you're right. You can still text, you can still watch videos. It's probably not as fast that the battery was about hundred percent. Um, but you know, you can still function per se. And what we, when we look at the curves for melatonin, it really starts to peak as that homeostatic drive is like lessened. So it can help keep us asleep. Melatonin is also really interesting because there's anti-inflammatory properties um, for women as well. Just putting this out there. If you've already had an episode of breast cancer, taking melatonin may help reduce your risk for having a secondary event. So it can have some anti-cancer effect and it can also help lower our body temperature because when we're sleeping, our body temperatures, you know, want to be, need to be a little bit cooler. Yeah. And so it's interesting that some people can benefit from taking melatonin. And when you take a look at the research, about the age of 55, 60 and above, we have less melatonin release. So does that mean that anybody above that age should take melatonin? Well, I would caution on the reason you think you may need to take it. Um, If it's more for, you know, Um, anti-inflammatory or anti-cancer, potentially in terms of sleep, some of the studies in and around perimenopause and menopause show it's only beneficial for, you know, some of the women who have insomnia or sleep disturbances. You know, I did mention it it may lower um, the body temperature, but it doesn't really help with hot flashes. And another report um, said it may help with some of the mood. So it's really interesting of thinking of melatonin beyond sleep. Melatonin in the U.S. is not regulated as a prescription medication. In some countries, you actually need a prescription from a doctor to be able to pick it up. It's regulated as a food. And so in 2017, there was a really interesting research research performed on melatonin where they took about 30 brands of melatonin. And even within those brands, some of the batches had a lot of varying um, dosages or actually active ingredient melatonin to to the point where it was even a negative percent to greater than 400%. So I always caution my patients and people I talk to that, yeah, melatonin may be beneficial, you know, if you're um, a shift worker, if you're someone who has a circadian rhythm, that's a little bit delayed, using melatonin may help pull your clock back, but you really want to make sure you have a good quality melatonin because you may not even be getting melatonin. So Which brand sort of do you recommend? Do you have any yeah. ones? 
I do. And this is just based on researchers um, in circadian science that use this when they do their studies. Um, consumer labs, if you're a part of it, you do have to pay. It's almost like consumer reports. So for supplements, consumer labs, you can look up. There's Pure Encapsulations, Life Extension, and um, the Trader Joe's brand is said to be pretty reputable. Um, Natural, N-A-T-R-O-L. Um, I've also looked up and that one has um, a pretty good quality standards as well. Yeah. Okay. That's good. I think we will be sure to link those brands um, yeah. in the show notes or the description somewhere in case people want to. Mm. I took yeah. melatonin for a while in PT school um, <laughs> for a variety of reasons. I wasn't yeah. sleeping uh, that I know now that I didn't know then. Mm. And I was probably not taking a very good brand of melatonin. And the thing um, about melatonin too, sorry to interrupt, but sometimes it's mixed with hops um, lavender, magnesium, um, chamomile, lemon balm, and those herbs and minerals may be more sleep promoting because they work on the GABA system. So it may not be the actual melatonin itself. It's the, could be the combination of the other things in it. So just something else to consider if you do take a melatonin type substance and then you're like, Oh, I sleep great. Yeah. It could, it might not be the melatonin. It might be the other herbs. Yep. So before we get into more interventions, Sure. Are there any other reasons that people might have a hard time falling asleep? Aside yeah, and I'm glad that you asked because I forgot to mention restless leg syndrome. So that's oh, a medical sleep condition that happens more often in women um, in and around pregnancy, but it can also run in families. And what restless leg syndrome is, it's an urge to move your legs. It's worse in the evening. So there's a circadian component too, um, and it gets better with movement. It's associated with low iron. So there's blood work that we can do. Um, and if your iron levels are low, giving your iron can help. There's also a genetic component. And so if you have these symptoms at least three times a week and it keeps you from falling asleep, um, then we consider it restless leg syndrome. Yeah, which it's interesting. Um, I have some folks who have this sensation, but they've had it for so long, it doesn't bother them because they're used to moving their legs and it helps soothe them to sleep. But I've also have some patients that pace the room for hours on end because it's um, really that uncomfortable. Yeah. Wow. So anything else that we wanted to cover under the falling asleep before we talk about what to do if you're having a hard time falling asleep? No, I think that's it. I think that was pretty comprehensive. Good. So for restless leg syndrome, we, we can <laughs> kind of work our way backwards. You said sure. perhaps they need an iron supplement mm -hmm. uh, movement. So is that like exercise throughout the day or is that like gentle stretching before bed or what movement would you recommend? I would say both, honestly, because, um, yeah, I'd say moving, moving is always good. <laughs> I'm not going to say don't move your body. You know, I think we were meant to move our bodies, but I think people who exercise more feel better with their, with their legs at night and then gentle stretching exercises. Um, some can just be like internal rotation of the hips and toe tapping, um, can help. Yeah. Okay. And then working our way back, we said, yes. um, almost like that stress response a little bit. Mm, so, yeah. And what, what would you recommend if someone is experiencing maybe elevated cortisol at night? There's a lot of different causes, yeah. but what would be some of the treatments for that. Yeah, I would say depending on how severe it is, you know, talking to a therapist about it, um, cognitive therapy for anxiety, um, if it's so bad that it's causing insomnia, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Um, if you're, if, if it's more situational, you know, it's not a chronic thing. And we say chronic at least three months, 
Um, I'm a big fan of breathing exercises. You mentioned, you know, the sort of the sympathetic drive, that stress response. One of the quickest ways to go from the stress response to the relaxation response is to slow down your breathing. So they've done research on this. If you can slow down your breaths per minute to six, um, that can be really beneficial. I'm also a big fan of, you know, sort of really low cost or free type things and journaling. Um, getting a pen and paper and just writing down your thoughts. I typically do recommend this, recommend to do this exercise during the daytime, not too close to bedtime because it can be really stimulating and it doesn't have to be, you know, sort of a long drawn out process. I have a friend who's a, um, a fitness coach and a mental um, a therapist as well. And she just recommends two and a half minutes. So for the first 30 minutes, I'm sorry, 30 seconds, just set a timer, write down all the things that are bothering you. And then for the next two minutes, just go a little bit deeper. Um, and I think it's really a good way just to start this whole process. I personally, when I do it and the thoughts are on a piece of paper, it makes it not seem as sort of serious or as severe because um, you're distancing yourself from the thoughts. And uh, sort of a good analogy I think of is, if you have a lot of thoughts that come up in your mind at night, you know, think of it like your email or even your snail mail. You know, do you just leave all those um, messages um, unarchived or undeleted or your regular mail, you know, all those sort of advertisements you get? Do you just leave them on your dining room table or do you actually throw them away? And so a similar analogy to your thoughts. And I think one thing a lot of folks aren't taught is that you can actually choose different thoughts where you can actually control the way that you think. And so that's sort of how I talk to some of my patients about that. Yes. So I talk about thought work a lot. Mindset oh, work wonderful. so important in our program. Um, I had a question on cortisol as it related sure. to caffeine during intermittent fasting. This was from one of our members. And she wanted to know if drinking caffeine on an empty stomach while intermittent fasting would raise cortisol, which would then potentially delay that sleepiness because as from what I know, cortisol mm -hmm. and melatonin are kind of um, counter-regulatory. So if cortisol is up, melatonin can't come up, you don't get as sleepy. It's how it's been explained to me. Yeah. Um, would you agree with that? Or is it again, person specific on how, how they metabolize caffeine? I'd say a little bit of both. So when we take a look at cortisol, certainly levels can spike throughout the day, depending on activity, depending on stress, um, and a lot of different factors. But when we take a look specifically at sleep in the evening time, right, our cortisol levels want to slow down, drop down, right, so we can get into that restful state and go to sleep. Early in the morning, we do see our cortisol levels rise. And the reason for that is because typically, you know, mentioned going into intermittent fasting, we need to have enough blood sugar to wake up, right? Because that's the fuel for our cells. And so if our cortisol levels are rising in the morning, um, that helps wake us up. And also, right, melatonin is coming down because, you know, we're, we're, we don't need um, to be asleep anymore. If you're drinking caffeine in the morning time, I would say that I wouldn't worry about your cortisol levels at night. Okay. I would worry more if you do have a hard time sleeping, thinking about your adenosine system rather than the cortisol system. Yeah. Okay. That makes, that makes good sense. And then mm -hmm. the amber colored blue light blockers are what I always recommend. Do you have yes. any other recommendations? Um, obviously blocking it throughout the day, perhaps like I always have my night shift on my phone and my computer. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise I'd be wearing like clear colored blue light blockers, but is there any other recommendations that you have for that to help? the melatonin come up a little bit more? 
Yeah, it's an hour before your desired bedtime, right? If you can have the amber cues on, avoid screens if at all possible. But if you still need to do some work or if you're on the screens and that's your form of relaxation, yeah, use the blocking glasses. Um, the other aspect is in the morning time, right? So making your making sure you're getting enough sunlight to tell the melatonin to go away, but it also can reset your clock the next night, especially for folks who are a little bit more of night owls are a little bit delayed and they want to turn their back their clocks back. It's getting enough sunlight in the morning. And some of the research shows half an hour. Some people need even up to two hours. So if you work inside and you don't have access to natural sunlight, um, you know, I just recommend folks to get a light box, 10,000 lux, you know, they're um, called happy lights, or it's sort of the same type of treatment that we use for people who have seasonal affective disorder, right? If you live in a place where, you know, in the wintertime, like Alaska or northern parts of the northern hemisphere, where it's really dark, it can really affect your mood, um, which also can affect your sleep, right? So making sure you have enough sunlight in the morning time is also really important for your melatonin levels, right? The next night, it's, it's, so it's a trigger for your brain. It's so important. And I think it's so overlooked. I think so many of us work inside. Um, my question for you is I always, I typically work by a window. Mm-hmm. But isn't some of that, is that beneficial or do, do I need that open air? Like how does that work with the natural sunlight? Yeah, that's a great question. And there's actually, I think an app called light meter where you can download and Dr. Andrew Huberman talks about it and you can see how much sunlight is coming through. I also work near a window. It's to the left of me here, but it's also a really cloudy day. So if it's a cloudy day, if you have windows that are tinted, it blocks out some of that light. So if that's the case, then you need uh, a longer exposure to that light. With that said, it it depends. You know, a lot of times when I speak, um, I want to clarify between someone who's like a healthy, normal adult who has difficulty sleeping every now and then versus someone who's a night owl with delayed sleep phase syndrome with insomnia who really need to tighten up some of their sleep habits. So, I mean, speaking in general, right, because, you know, um, I can't make specific recommendations, I'd say it's better to get more sunlight in the morning, at least half an hour. If it's a bright light, it's best. Um, But if you don't have access to that and you notice your sleep is a little bit later than you'd like, then, okay, you know, probably get a light box for your desk. Okay. That's interesting. I I like that recommendation for the light meter app because Mm -hmm. my daily routine doesn't include a lot of morning sunlight. Like Mm -hmm. I try to get maybe 30 to 60 seconds either out the back door or be intentional to look to the east when I'm Mm -hmm. getting the kids ready. Um, But then I'm in the car, which who knows how much is coming through there. And then I'm in my office space. And I just, you know, that's just not part of my daily routine in my life. Hopefully later on, I can make it that Um, Nebraska, it's cold a good part of the year. And I'm a baby when it comes to the cold. So I don't want to go outside when it's cold, even though I know. Understandable. Yeah. Um, So those are really good recommendations there. The other thing that I wanted to ask, you mentioned some supplements and melatonin. Mm -hmm. Um, Are there any specific supplements that facilitate falling asleep? Yeah, definitely. So some of the supplements that have some research, and I just want to sort of preface it, is that, yeah, in the U.S., there's a lot of money put into pharmacology, and that's almost the way that medical doctors are trained. You know, we meet a patient, we ask them questions, we do a lab test or, you know, an imaging study, and then we either match a surgery or medication to it. Since I have a background in integrative medicine, basically just expanded my toolbox. So I do know about supplements. Um, I feel like 
they can be helpful in certain situations. I think of supplements sort of, I think of as sleeping pills, you know, you fall and break your arm. Um, you know, definitely we want to give you something to be more comfortable to help take away the pain, but that pain pill isn't going to fix the broken bone, right? You probably need surgery. You probably need a pin or something like that. So they're the same as sleeping pills, right? They can, can be helpful if you're having a lot of stress in your life. You know, maybe you were just in the hospital or, you know, a family member was sick and you were taking care of them. Helpful chronic use of supplements. I would say, you know, I would recommend to look into other treatment options for that. With that said, some of the supplements that I do recommend um, are things like valerian root. Things that work on the GABA system can help um, basically slow down your brain waves. There's a lemon balm. Um, there's also chamomile. So if you take a look at the ingredients in some of the sleepy time teas, um, magnesium is really beneficial. I know earlier we spoke of restless leg syndrome. Magnesium is good for the muscles, can also work on the brain on the GABA system to help someone fall asleep. I know recently you, you spoke to someone in, for essential oils, a lavender, either through essential oil or through a um, a supplement. There is an oral version called, um, I think it's called Calm Aid, but I think it's uh, Selexient. Yeah. And that that can help as well. Um, it, it's really interesting because if you take a look at worldwide use of supplements, some countries embrace more of the herbals, more of the essential oils rather than others. So um, there's different formulations depending on which country um, you're looking at. So use a lot more, I would say, in, in Europe. Um, and, and those are some too, but I think with essential oils, I think they can be beneficial, but you have to like the scent for yeah. them um, <laughs> to work. So yeah, I definitely like the smell of lavender. So that helps. She had an interesting thing too, that she said was activating the vagus nerve. So mm -hmm. what she recommends is, I don't know, in hers, I'll, I'll be sure to link actually to that episode. So yeah, I'd to listen to that. For, for people that want to. And then she said she had a big blog post on it too, but I, it made sense to me. She put it behind the ear and it mm -hmm. was like cinnamon lime, if I'm remembering right. So more of an oh. activating because right. activate the vagus nerve to then stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system. Oh, interesting. So a, yeah. She's like, you know, I've used chamomile. I've used the, the mm -hmm. lavender. Um, but then I really like it. Like I've yeah. used your essential oils back there just, and like you said, you have to like the scent, but it does kind of help me calm down. So yeah. just a different approach, you yeah. know, you she said, you don't always have to use the calming ones. If you use right. the ones on the parasympathetic nerve. It can lead to that yeah. And it's interesting with the ear. So there's some interesting research, I believe out of China where auricular acupressure, or basically you could do ear massage. Because one of my friends who's a neurologist mentioned that uh, the vagus nerve is, um, it stimulates the ear. So different types of ear massage can help someone fall asleep too. So it's almost like you don't have to take a sleeping pill. You don't have to take an herbal. There's the free medicine out there, your breath, you know, massaging your ear. And if you like the scent of certain um, flowers, it can be really helpful too. So a lot of options. Yeah. So um, any other... I think we covered movement throughout the day. That was another mm -hmm. one of the interventions I thought of. Anything else for falling asleep that you can think of? Making sure you go to bed when you're tired. I think that's a big one and something I see a lot for our, for, for women and, and people in general is I think a lot of people are going to bed a little bit too early. You should fall asleep within 20, 30 minutes if it's taking you longer to do so then I would say, you know, don't go to your bed 
until that happens. Um, my favorite analogy to help sort of teach my patients about this is, you know, what do you do when you go to the gym, right? You exercise. What do you do when you go to a restaurant, right? You eat. But if you're spending half of the time awake in bed, then it confuses your brain, right? You want to, and this is called our sleep efficiency, how much time you're asleep versus how much time you're in bed. And a lot of my patients who have insomnia sort of hang out in bed, just waiting for sleep to come and just like trying to will it. Um, so teaching them about the circadian rhythm, teaching them about the, about the homeostatic sleep drive, but really it's, you know, called stimulus control. You want to see your bed and your brain tells you, all right, go to sleep. Mm-hmm. So sort of like what we do in the restaurant and in, in, in the gym. I think that goes to like not having a TV in your room or not watching the TV in your room, not having your phone by your bed. Like yep. if you're in bed, <laughs> looking at your tablet, like maybe we change that to sitting in the chair and looking at the tablet with your blue exactly. on. And then when you go to bed, you're in bed. So exactly. yep. like that is for sleep and sex and that's about it. Yep. So, yeah. It's not your lounge chair. It's not your living room. The thing about it is, is I think we've encouraged people to make the bedroom so comfortable. Yeah. that they just, you know, they like their bed. It's comfortable. It's good. But at the end of the day, it's really just for your sleep. And then of course, Lounge somewhere else, relax somewhere yeah. else, use the bed. I like that. Um, that reminds me to ask you the question of sure. what about if someone is laying in bed for longer than 10 to 20 minutes, what do you do then? Do you recommend them get up? Do you recommend them stay in bed? How, what do you recommend? Yes, definitely get out of bed. And these are principles for cognitive behavioral therapy. And I do get a lot of resistance from patients around that. And so what we've come up with is a scale. So if you're able to stay in bed and your level of anxiety, stress around your inability to fall asleep is pretty low, okay, hang out there. Like resting is also beneficial, even though you're not technically sleeping. If you're starting to get really frustrated and maybe you're tossing and turning, okay, maybe you're at a medium level of stress, hang out for another 10, 15 minutes. And then if it's a high level of stress where you're just like, oh, my day is going to be ruined. I don't even know how I'm such a bad sleeper. Sometimes you have that negative sleep talk, definitely remove that negative energy from your bed. Yeah. Because I like to think of it in increments because if it's a low grade level, you know, maybe you'll fall asleep. Because sometimes people tell me, well, you know, two times out of the week I can hang out and I'll be able to fall asleep. Um, and it's probably okay just to rest in bed. But yeah, if it's really, you're just frustrating and tossing, turning and you're disrupting your bed partner and their sleep, probably best just to get out. Yeah. And then um, what do they do? So when they get out of bed, what not to do, what to do? Kind of thing. Something relaxing, right? Sleep happens when your brain waves slow down. So pick an exercise, listen to soft music, um, read, but hopefully not with too much bright light. Um, if you live alone, you know, I have some folks who like play the guitar <laughs> or even like to dance. Um, just avoid anything that's too stimulating, you know, try not to go on your phone, which is bright light, and then start reading the news or go on a social media site where you may read something that may upset you or make you excited. Um, so think of ways to wind down and any type of mind body practice, you know, I'm a big fan of just breathing exercises. Another thing that I like to recommend to my patients is, you know, self-hypnosis or guided imagery, go to your happy place right? You know, go to a place, imagine that you're on vacation. And what was it like being there at that resort, at that bed, and fully immerse yourself in all your senses? What are you eating? What are you smelling? What are you hearing? And you can use the power of your own imagination to almost transport yourself there. And you can almost have that those same good feelings, even though you're in your own bedroom. 
Yep. That's awesome. Um, really good. I think that was a great conversation. I know we have about yeah. 10 minutes left. Sure. So I wanted to save some time for what do we do when we get up in the middle of the night? So what, mm-hmm. you know, what about the waking up? What causes that? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. And I would say the number one condition I'd like to rule out is obstructive sleep apnea. And so that's a medical sleep condition where the muscles of the upper airway, typically it's the tongue falls back and closes off your airway. Because at night when you sleep, your muscles are relaxing. And this is something to really be mindful of as we get older, because A, our muscles aren't as strong. I know a lot of the folks in your community are moving and exercising. So ideally, if you are doing generalized exercise, the muscles of your upper airway are strong. Stronger, but there are perimenopause and menopause related changes as our hormone levels start to fluctuate um, that can impact the strength of our upper airway. So one thing to note is that not everybody needs to snore to have sleep apnea. So snoring, gasping, choking, stopping breathing are sort of the, the primary symptoms of it. But oftentimes women can just wake up with headaches, wake up a little bit more moody and then feel fatigued and tired throughout the day. So if you do have any of those symptoms, but specifically the snoring, definitely talk to your doctor, nurse practitioner, physician assistant about getting the sleep test because they're really easy to do now. You can actually just do a home sleep apnea test. Um, They're not 100%. uh, They may miss some folks who their airway partially collapses and their brain wakes them up before they're completely collapsed, but it's a good place to start. I'm more surprised when the home test is negative rather than it's positive because so many people do in fact have it. Up to 90% of women uh, who potentially have sleep apnea aren't even diagnosed because there's a lot of gender bias in medicine. I mentioned earlier, sometimes women will go to their doctor and they say, oh, you're just depressed or it's your thyroid. Go see the therapist. Here's a slip for your blood work. Um, So yeah, make sure that you don't have sleep apnea because once you're asleep, if your tongue is falling back, I like to say all the meditation and breathing exercises in the world doesn't do anything to open up that airway. Um, So I would say that's number one. Other things to consider for women are waking up to urinate. Um, Drinking a lot of water can definitely be part of that, but blood sugar levels, right? If you do have undiagnosed diabetes, what happens is that you just have so much sugar in your system that your your kidneys are just trying to flush it all out. And so waking up to urinate can be certainly part of that. On the opposite end too, a lot of people are intermittently fasting. And if you're doing it in the evening time, sometimes, right, your blood sugar levels can go a little bit lower to the point where your body's like, hey, this is not unsafe. I need to actually wake up and eat. Um, there's not a lot of specific research around that for women and many in perimenopause. I've heard it more and anecdotally from some friends that I know who use continuous glucose monitors. Um, what else? If you have restless leg syndrome, uh, up to 80% of these folks can have periodic limb movement disorder. And what that means is you're actually kicking your legs at night. So it's the nighttime symptoms of restless leg syndrome. We treat it exactly the same way. Insomnia from just a hyper aroused state can also lead to someone waking up in the middle of the night as well. I have some patients who have no difficulty falling asleep, but the staying asleep is an issue. Um, pain, you know, if you're on your back for too long, if you're on your side for too long, you need to shift your body. Bed partner who snores, <laughs> that can be a reason um, to wake yourself up, right? If you're getting older, you know, your bed partner could be getting older as well, and maybe they're developing sleep apnea. So those are some. Um, things that I commonly see in my practice. I think reverse engineering the treatment from that, like mm-hmm. I recently suggested to a Zibli member, check the sleep app fit. I think a lot um, of 
the nasal pillows come out or Mm -hmm. it's not fitting right anymore. And it's been a while since they got a new fit or a new mask that can really help. Yeah, Um, definitely. I think earplugs, like for me, uh, when our, when we're trying to sleep train our kids, this is funny Mm -hmm. on vacation. I was so excited. I got a new eye mask. I got new earplugs. Cause I'm like, if they cry in the night, I know they don't need me or it's Mm -hmm. like my husband's night. We alternate. Mm -hmm. So I put these fantastic earplugs in. And my husband still like nudged me in the middle of the night, like, Hey, the kids are crying. I'm like, what do you want me to do about it? Don't you see? I bought my new year. So, you know, there are different solutions for the noises and the light. Like I think that really Mm -hmm. helps. And then water intake. So for me personally, I try to limit water after bed and that really helps me not have to get up to urinate, at least not every Mm -hmm. night. Um, and then carb intake, would you recommend yeah. moderating that? I know if I eat sugar, obviously that really gets my system revved up. Um, alcohol, as you mentioned, can kind of cause that mid, like that waking up in the middle of the night when it's metabolized. So mm-hmm. would you kind of recommend limiting, especially refined carb intake in the evenings to help with that mid? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. The If you take a look at some of the food content in terms of macronutrients, saturated fats, and more simple carbohydrates are associated with more arousals at night. So yeah, higher fiber foods are better. Protein, the verdict is still out. Um, I'll have to review the literature again. But when I last looked, there wasn't much evidence around it. I know a lot of people who are more in like that um, sort of muscle building (laughs) are really heavy in the protein. I think a lot of women don't eat enough protein. Does it impact the quality of sleep that we have? Not sure yet. So, yeah. Really interesting. Okay. And then with our last couple of minutes, I want you to yes. go over, um, and we kind of touched on it a mm-hmm. little bit already, um, waking up early in the morning, you know, yeah. for five when they want to sleep until 5.30, So what are the major causes of that? I would say for women, what we have seen are fluctuations in hormones, as, even aside from someone who's having hot flashes. So progesterone is a relaxation hormone. And so when we go through perimenopause and menopause, the levels drop. And so it has been associated with more arousals at night. Um, so that's something definitely to look into. And then the other one is the homeostatic sleep drive, right? If you've met that sort of minimum sleep core you know, amount of sleep, it's harder to go back to sleep if, you know, the kids wake up, if your you know, partner is snoring, if your blood sugar is dropping, right? Um, doesn't mean that you can't. Sometimes it'll just take longer than you initially anticipated. And then the other thing, too, is to check your mind in terms of um, are you getting upset that you're not able to fall asleep? It's 3 a.m. and you're staring at your ceiling and then you're thinking about, oh, this work project that I have to do. Oh, I have to make sure, you know, I go with my mom for her doctor's appointment in a few hours. It's really interesting. I have a friend who is um, an Ayurvedic practitioner. And so that's the whole system process in um, India. And in India, I guess they recommend if you're up those early hours, it's sort of the sacred hour because it's quiet, you know, and that's the time to do your like prayers and meditation. So it's a little bit different shift versus I think in the US, you're supposed to be sleeping eight hours. If you're not, if you're waking up in the middle of the night, something is wrong with you. You know, there are a normal amount of arousals at night. Typically people can go back to sleep, but if you have a hard time going back to sleep, I think that's something that you should look into if there's an underlying medical sleep condition or a blood sugar issue that's um, contributing to that. Yeah. Or your diet, right. Or what you're eating. 
That's a really big, really big point. Um, I just wanted to highlight the importance of the prayer and then the breathing. So just for my own personal life, I feel like I go to bed and I don't always calm my mind down right away, like Mm. for whatever reason. And then when I remember that I'm doing that, I'm like, okay, pray to fall asleep to whoever you want to pray to pray to fall asleep and take breaths. And I'm like, count, you know, take 15 deep breaths. I kid you not. I don't ever remember getting to 15. Yeah, I love that. Really does work for me. Obviously, there's a lot of other things that go right in my habits Mm -hmm. day. That's not like a magic fix, but that's what I do in the moment is like pray to fall asleep, take deep breaths. And it's it's your wind down routine. And and similarly, when I when I speak with patients, going to that go to the gym analogy, right? When you go to the gym, you start off on the heaviest weights. Or are you going to warm up your muscles when you go to a nice restaurant? Are you going to, you know, immediately jump to the steak dinner? Or are you going to have your soup, your salad, a little appetizer? So we've, I feel like we've been conditioned. Okay, it's time to go to bed. You put your head on your pillow and then you're immediately out. But we got to have that wind down you know, period, whether it be breathing exercise, prayer, listening to soft music, reading a book, um, incorporate that in your life. And I think a lot of women really don't give themselves enough time and and attention. I, maybe in your community, it's different because it's focused on health, but can you schedule the last hour of your day just for you? And why not? Like you really should, because guess what? If you're not getting an adequate amount of sleep, it's going to be harder to make healthy decisions, right? It's going to be harder to want to move your body because you're feeling tired. Yeah. It's almost well, like it's necessary. It is necessary. Yeah. We talk about our Zibli habit hierarchy and after our mindset work, I think sleep is the next one, sleep and water mm. up there because we talk about the domino effect. If you can yeah. really make that stuff, all the other habits are so much easier to implement, but I know that you have a client here in just a few minutes. I want to yeah. just tell you, I really appreciated your time. Yeah, next you shared so many great resources today. Um, I did take notes, so we'll be sure to get um, the majority of those resources in the notes, but can you let people learn like how can they learn more about you? How can they work with you if they want to work with you? Yeah, so I take you know one-on-one patients and clients just in Hawaii and California because that's where I have my medical practice. That's sleeplifemed.com. Everyone else, I put a lot of free resources either on YouTube or on my website where I have articles um, and that's sleepphoria.com. So thank you so much, Morgan. Happy to be here and thanks for letting me share my love of sleep with everyone. Yeah, it was our pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Reshape Your Health podcast today. To learn more about Zibli, our online course and coaching program to reverse insulin resistance for long-term weight loss and disease prevention, check out our website at www.zibli.com. That's Z-I-V-L-I.com. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a rating and review on your listening platform and share it with a friend. I'll talk with you at the same time, same place next week. Bye for now.